Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter here on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. The conventional narrative about the economic history of World War II says that new learning from wartime mobilization and technological innovations jump-started a post-war golden age of fast economic growth. However, economist Alexander Field writes in his 2011 book, A Great Leap Forward, it was not principally the war that laid the foundation for post-war prosperity. It was technological progress across a broad frontier of the American economy during the 1930s. Field develops that argument in his new book, The Economic Consequences of U.S. Mobilization for the Second World War, released last fall. In this episode of Faster Please, the podcast, I'm joined by Alex to discuss his argument. Alex is the Michael Amaria Raja Professor of Economics at Santa Clara University's Levy School of Business. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. You write in A Great Leap Forward, uh, a book that I consult frequently uh, and mention frequently in my writings. The years 1929 to 1941 were in aggregate the most technologically progressive of any comparable period in U.S. economic history. It was not principally the war that laid the foundation for post-war prosperity. It was technological progress across a broad frontier of the American economy during the 1930s. Your new book builds upon that argument. But could you just for a moment give uh, a quick summary of A Great Leap Forward and then how that sort of moves into your new book? Well, the basic argument of the uh, great of A Great Leap Forward was that behind the backdrop of uh, double-digit unemployment for at least a decade, potential output was growing by leaps and bounds during the Great Depression. It wasn't really recognized until Simon Kuznets had to try to, you know, do a back of the envelope calculation of what the potential of the economy could be. But that was, uh, the, 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 the contributors to that were, I think, several. Number one was the, uh, the, the last third of the conversion of the internal transmission of power within American factories from the uh, shafts and belts of the late, you know, which was a signature of the 19th century factory to small fractional horsepower electric motors and uh, electric wiring. Uh, and the second part was just an enormous amount, surprisingly, of research and development spending. Just astounding if you think of the depression as being so, you know, disastrous macroeconomically, but in terms of the number of people employed growing by leaps and bounds, number of labs established, and then finally, you know, although it's widely accepted that the New Deal spending was too small in a Keynesian sense to, you know, immediately bring the economy out of the depression, uh, nevertheless, that spending on streets and highways and bridges and hydropower and so on had very strong positive supply side effects. So I think it's the combination of those three factors that I see as responsible for making potential output so much larger in 1941 than people thought it was. For sort of the the layman, uh, you're finding in that book in your thesis uh, extraordinarily counterintuitive. You would never expect 
uh, that they're that underneath that high that those that sky high unemployment number and the failing banks and the bread lines that there was this sort of you know innovative ferment uh, uh, happening and, and foundations laid for future uh, future progress. Similarly, to the extent that people would have an economic opinion about World War II, I, I would guess one that it brought us out of the Great Depression, and two, that it was a period of key advances, key technologies, both technologies and the fact maybe we learned how to do things more efficiently during the war, whether it's build boats or or what have you, that, that, that those two things, again, are what played a huge role in sort of the post-war prosperity. That's, I think that might be sort of the everyman way they would conceive of it. That is not exactly what you found. I no, I think you've done a very good good job uh, characterizing what I see as the two key uh, themes in the conventional wisdom about the uh, Second World War, and uh, basically the argument that fiscal and monetary stimulus rapidly closed the output gap. The unemployment rate went from under ten percent in forty one to unimaginably low below two percent in forty three and forty four that's accepted, and I'm not challenging that, but the second part of the conventional wisdom is uh, what what the economists call learning by doing the emphasis on the decline in unit costs uh, with accumulated output as a result of producing military durables. And the argument is exactly as you stated it. The argument is that that learning spilled over into the post-war period and kind of underlie the supply side foundations for the golden age, which is 48 to 73. Now, my argument is different. I see the Second World, Second World War from a, from a productivity history perspective as a detour. Uh, my argument is that the, the progress, the growth of potential output up through 1941, that's essentially most of the reason why the U.S. stands astride the world economy in 48, not what happened between 41 and 48, might have been different if the U.S. had persisted in producing 100,000 aircraft a year into piston-driven aircraft into the year, but we didn't. We didn't produce piston-driven aircraft. Most of the products that we got very good at making, we stopped making them fairly soon after victory over Japan Day. And uh, I view most of that uh, spe you know, specific human capital as not really having a great deal of relevance after the war. As you mentioned, the things we got good at making were the, were the, were the instruments, not just the instruments of war, but the instruments of war at a particular period that were not one. So they were not maybe going to be applicable to future conflicts, but they're also not applicable to what to a to a, um, a civilian economy that uh, once the war was over, began to expand very quickly. Uh, you mentioned the airplanes. I would also assume the kind of shipbuilding that was done in the war, also not particularly applicable to the post-war era. That's right. That's, that's, that, that's, uh, you know, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I see basically the success of U.S. industry under government leadership in, in producing the the military ordinance that supplied our armies as well as those of Britain and the Soviet Union, our allies and so on. I see that basically as the application of technologies that had been honed uh, in the 20s and particularly in the 1930s, producing automobiles and refrigerators and applying that management experience to mass producing military durables, 
rather than the view that it was experience producing military durables that laid the foundations for the post-war period in terms of supply side. I think people would think that that we didn't need to look anymore at the Great Depression or World War II, that this is that that is they would say settled science, that we know we know exactly what happened and why happened. Uh, apparently, uh, the role of the World War II, what happened there was is not settled science. So what what were people missing previously? What did you sort of find that that that, that presents a different perspective? Well, I think, as you say, it began with the findings about the Great uh, the Great Depression. But it, it basically, I mean, look, I think what we're doing in the business of research, particularly academic research, is we're 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 we're, we're researching things. We're trying to find something new to say, but finding something new to say is 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 only part of it. It also has to be something that actually might be true. And so it really uh, it came out of sort of uh, really deep immersion in a wide variety of sources, both statistical and uh, documentary, reading the minutes of the War Production Board, reading the minutes of the Planning Committee. And as this happened, you know, a lot of preconceptions that I had about the war began to fall away. For example, I mean, the central empirical finding, surprising finding in this book or the argument is that the productivity of American manufacturing, and it is within manufacturing that we would expect to see the effects of learning by doing, actually dropped dramatically between 1941 and 1945. And one of the things that I kind of picked up from this immersion in the sources was rather than a, a view of American industry during the war as, you know, 24-7, 365 days a year, I get a picture of really profound production intermittency. In other words, essentially the need to shut down production lines because you it's a shortage economy. You've moved from a surplus economy to a shortage economy. You know, sub-assemblies and raw materials and ultimately labor are being rationed. And if you can't get, you know, the, the heat exchanger you need, then the whole line is going to sit there so that you have, you know, it's, it's a very different, a very, a very different uh, uh, view. And then you, you, you see this being said, you see uh, in Nelson's, uh, you know, biography, you know, he talks about destroyer escorts. Well, you know, they were they were sitting there for six months because they couldn't get the, you know, the part that they needed to complete it. And those are kind of throwaway lines. They're there. But they're not part of the of the kind of standard narrative, so that they're they're kind of overlooked as anomalies. And I don't want to get too Thomas Kuhnian about that. But if you you start kind of uh, you know kind of pulling those anomalies together and assembling them and so on, then you get a different picture. And that's what I've tried to articulate in the book. What I, I love sort of the the uh, your role as kind of economic detective that it's not just about going to the uh, BLS website and pulling up a data and then off you go, that there's some real detective work as a, as a, as a historian, as much as uh, an economist going on here. And I also, it's really interesting thinking about the narrative because I think, I, I think you're right that I sort of picture December 7th, 1941, uh, we, we, we head off to war and then it's all hands on deck. The, uh, the, you know, the, uh, the production lines are never quiet. The steel mills are never cool. And it, it's all that way until uh, August 1945. Uh, but perhaps now, having gone through this pandemic, we're a little more aware of, you know, of, of what a short what what happens when you have a shortage economy, which is, you know, what you found. Yeah, 
No, I, I, it's absolutely it's absolutely the case. I mean, forty two was an absolutely chaotic, terrible year. I mean, I wouldn't I, I would say there was no consensus in Washington that the United States was going to was going to win the war. You know, and it wasn't just the problems of of uh, you know getting getting you know suddenly having to produce a radically different uh, set of products and making all this transition. You know, the Japanese and the Germans weren't making it any easier for us, and I talk about that in the book as well. I think also vastly overlooked, I had absolutely no idea of the severity of the rubber famine, what I call the rubber famine in the in the United States, when the Japanese overran Singapore in February 42 and then rapidly, you know, shut off all of the exports. They caught off over 95% of the one strategic material in which the United States had effectively no domestic sourcing. And they were panicked, absolutely panicked about this uh, rubber survey committee. So that was that was another negative supply shock. And then the Germans were enormously successful in torpedoing what I call the tanker pipeline that was bringing petroleum and petroleum products from East Texas and Louisiana to the eastern eastern seaboard. That's how it was moved and so forth. And between January and June of uh, 42 they torpedoed you know 400 ships in the atlantic and the caribbean and just completely shut that down and there were also serious consequences about that was was the war a a a time of great science um uh you know, great science productivity or is that also a, a detour uh toward science that was not as applicable to the post-war period and we were not and we were able maybe to build on the gains and science of the you know 20s and 30s and so forth i think i mean the evidence is pretty clear and i would cite james conant you know former president of harvard and also a member of the rubber survey committee basically saying during the war basic scientific research is shut down what this was an all hands on deck we're going to use essentially exploit our existing larder you know of scientific knowledge you know to fight the war now, I mean, again, sir, obviously there were developments in terms of technology and science during the war. I can talk about some of them. We could talk about jet engines. It's clear that jet engine technology did advance during the war. But look, aircraft and aircraft engine technology was advancing very rapidly in the 1930s. And you have to ask the counterfactual what would have happened without that. Uh, I mean, and again, for as far as the United States, we never flew any jet engines during the uh, Jet engine craft in the uh, in the nineteen uh, uh, in, the, in in the, in the Second World War, nuclear power. Yeah, we spent two billion dollars on the uh, Manhattan Project and so on. And I think we started nuclear first nuclear power plant was in England in in fifty six. I think, but and we obviously we have relied to some degree on nuclear power. I think it's you know that the, the jury is kind of still out on the extent to which that was a big plus and it's operated only with enormous subsidies in terms of you know government accepting the liability limits and so on so we could talk about other factors and again i i sure there were some significant institutional consequences of the second world war but from a technological perspective i do see it as a detour and as far as basic science i think there's really this is one of those areas which is not a lot of dispute it was shut down as was r d development in terms of consumer durables uh what sort of response have you gotten uh from other economists other economic uh historians 
there have been sort of people nibbling at the edges. They're not happy with one little thing or one, uh, you know, one or the other. But I think the reality is that, you know, people have um, have not, you know, the World War II is not something that economic historians have given that much, you know, attention to. The time series econometricians will typically drop the observations from World War II. Oh, it was a controlled economy. Everything was messed up. We can't run our, and so on. And so now I have I, the basic thesis I have not gotten a lot of pushback on. Because when I saw that your your book had come out, the first thing that popped in my head, since I, I, I write a lot about productivity growth, was a a passage in Robert Gordon's book, uh, in which he very specifically writes about labor productivity in World War II and how uh, the, the thing that the improved production techniques and so forth uh, how they were not forgotten after the war. So what you're what you're describing is a is a, a very different view of productivity. What Bob Gordon did in chapter sixteen, and and uh, you know, I, obviously you're familiar with it. I'm, I, I I read I read the, all of the all of the manuscript you know in chapters. So yes, I am quite familiar with the book. <laughs> and what he did in chapter sixteen was, I think, absolutely crystallize and state very very clearly the second key theme in terms of the conventional wisdom about the war. He went beyond that. He then kind of advertised it as novel. But in the book, if you read the book carefully, you know, there's just, a no, I have, you know, considerable documentation because whenever you're trying to say something novel, you have to kind of, to, you have to persuade people that, you know, we didn't already know this and so on. And what, what I think Bob is doing basically there is just absorbing and very clearly stating what is the received wisdom by many historians and economic historians. And I just think it's wrong. I think one of the more intriguing economic counterfactuals is what what the American economy looks like in the in the forties and then in the post war era. If there was no post war era, if there had not been all all else equal, if there was no need for a war, if we had not had this diversion, what does the economy of the United States in the second half of the twentieth century look like? Well. Um... You know, I mean, it's and it is a counterfactual. You know, one thing I would say is that the war did interrupt, you know, a very strong trajectory of productivity growth, both labor productivity and total factor productivity. You know, in the last, uh, as as the output gap closed between thirty nine and forty one, and what you're seeing there in terms of my interpretation is number one, just a continuation of that that long term or that trend during the depression of very strong productivity growth secular trend combined with uh, you know a boost also from closing the output gap because of the pro-cyclicality of TFP. Now if you just were to you know statistically extrapolate that through through the 41 to 48 period, you know <laughs> things look things look pretty good. I mean it's a it's a questionable kind of exercise in terms of you know how accurate that would be. Sure. But I, 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 I again I think if you look at 48, if you look at the world in 1948, People, historians, everybody else is looking at that and they're seeing the United States is standing like an economic colossus astride the world. You know, Soviet Union's lost 20 million people. Germany, Dresden, Hamburg, they've been firebombed. Uh, England has had to basically liquidate its overseas empire, economic empire to pay for the war. Japan has had two atomic bombs and virtually all of the other major cities have been, have been you know, firebombed with incendiaries and so on. And I think it's natural 
particularly because the U.S. was victorious and so on, and particularly because it was so successful in production. But of course, pr productivity is not the same as production. It's production per unit input because it was so successful in that to say that that was attributable to the war years. And again, I come back to my thesis, which is, no, I see essentially the pr productivity the, in 48, the U.S. had a major productivity lead over Western Europe and Japan. And the next 30 years, what the French called a tante glorieuse and so forth, essentially saw living standards converging among the developed world as that productivity gap uh, is closed. But my argument is that that productivity gap is already quite evident in 1941. It's not a function of the war. It's there in spite of the war. So even without the 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 destruction to our competitors in World War II and our lack of destruction, the U.S. in 1950 would still be standing astride the world right. as an economic and colossus on the technological frontier, even without the war. Right, but you know it's interesting to think about American industry uh, pre-war, say in the 30s and post-war. Now, let's talk about the American automobile industry, because that was central, you know, in terms of the prosecution of the war, in terms of the conversion of those factories and, the, you know, the, con the, the contractors operating the automobile industry firms operating these big defense plants and so on. The night economic historians basically agree that the 1930s was probably the most dynamic period in terms of innovation in American automobiles, in terms of the development of industry. Now, do you really want to look at the 1950s and say that those were the glory years of American U.S. manufacturing? I mean, you know, uh, the tail fins and so on, and, you know, the cars lasted three years, and, you know, we were, we essentially owned the marketplace. We weren't threatened by foreign imports yet, but you know, I don't see a major kind of upward progression in that direction. I do want to say, though, in terms of the legacy of the war, that there were, you know, clearly some important things that were different because of the war and maybe wouldn't have been if we hadn't had it. Number one, we had a, you know, we had a compression of wages. So there was essentially a 30 years of reduced inequality in income and wealth in the United States. Uh, number two, little things like, for example, the incredibly peculiar system whereby Americans provide health care yeah. to us, you know, tied to your employer. It's just an artifact of what Henry Kaiser did when, because of caps on wages, he wasn't able to raise wages. So we'll have benefits, you know, we'll have hospitals and so on. The introduction of tax withholding, you know, because of the high tax rates gave the federal government greater fiscal capacity. You know, blacks did very well. Many, uh, many American uh, 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 blacks essentially had the opportunity to move from unskilled to semi-skilled positions. So yes, there were some consequences. I, I don't want to suggest that everything was exactly the same or worse. I, I, I wanted to get that on the record. But in terms of the, the general trajectory of the growth of productivity and potential output, I would argue that the war was a detour. Then to what extent is sort of the 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 immediate post-war boom, you know, the 50s, 60s, heading into the early 70s, how much of that was based on sort of tech progress and innovation that emerged in those decades and how much was really building substantially on the foundations from the 20s and 30s? 
I, I think, I mean, well, there's a couple of things. First of all, the 50s and 60s did, benefits from, did benefit from relatively high levels of aggregate demand, partly because of military Keynesianism and the, the Cold War. So you had that, that problem was not, was not so great. You know, as far as um, the, uh, the technology uh, overlap, I, I, just, I just don't really, I, I think the, if there was learning during the war, and I in my in the chapter chapter nine of my book, I talk about this, and it's somewhat speculative there. I don't think it was within manufacturing. It's not the traditional emphasis on learning by doing. It was on logistics. It was on essentially the the efforts that, particularly in the military, in terms of the enormous knowledge, the use of linear programming, the gradual diffusion of those techniques to the private sector, the development of containerization, you know, multimodal transit yeah. and so on. So I, you know, if I were to kind of say in the post-war period, you know, what's what's the productivity legacy? I think maybe we've been barking up the wrong tree and maybe more emphasis needs to be placed there. Uh, I, I, I read various comments from uh, economists uh, at the end of World War II and maybe right um, right at, at, at the beginning of the post-war period that there seemed to be a lot of pessimism about what would, you know, are we going to go back into a Great Depression? What's going to happen when all these soldiers come back? Um, am I overstating that, that that sort of the post-war boom seemed to have been kind of a surprise uh, to, the, to, to those, those economists? Well, again, in terms of if you, if you want to, if you're thinking about actual output, a couple of things matter. Number one, potential matters but also the output gap matters. And the big concern among economists at the end of the Second World War was aggregate demand. In other words, they say once all of this military spending stops, essentially it's gonna be back to the 1930s and so forth. And that didn't happen. I think the conventional wisdom is probably right is that, you know, look, the balance sheets of American households were just in great shape. You know, they couldn't buy certain stuff. They were being right. well, fully employed. They, you know, there's a large lot of deferred demand for cars and washing machines. And so I think that's, I think you're absolutely right. There was a lot of pessimism, but it was mostly focused on aggregate demand. I mean, in one sense, who cares about potential, you know, if you're way below potential? And that was, I think, what was driving that pessimism. My last question is about your previous book. I just want to mention again uh, the name of your current book, which is The Economic Consequences of U.S. Mobilization for the Second World War, uh, a, a book I was delighted to see land uh, on my desk. Um, and, and as I said earlier, your previous book, A Great Leap Forward, one uh, which is well thumbed through by me. So I have one, one final question about that book. Uh, the cover image is the, is the famous Futurama ride uh, from the World's Fair of 1939, New York City. Why did you choose that image? I think because it captured the uh, kind of technological optimism and, you know, just sort of unalloyed, uncritical confidence in the ability of science and technology to push the economy forward, which which had been absorbed by the population in spite of the double-digit unemployment. And, of course, that is consistent with my thesis of what was actually happening in spite of the you know, the, the unemployment. I think that's the reason why I put that there. Professor Field, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. <laughs>